Icy Warrior, have you been struggling with what to eat when you're not at home because of icy diet restrictions? Do you get anxious when going out to eat because you aren't quite sure what is safe to order? Maybe you want clarification on icy triggers that can be hidden in prepared foods. Or you just want some ideas of what to order at fast food restaurants when you're on the road. If you're shaking your head like crazy thinking, wow, Kelly just read my mind, then this month's masterclass inside the IC Collective is for you. This class is taught by my support dietitian, Beverly, and covers how to be proactive and not reactive when dining out, how to access allergy and nutrition information for the most popular chain and fast food restaurants, which fast food restaurants have the best IC friendly choices, how to order out at your favorite Italian, Mexican, or Thai restaurant with confidence, and so much more. After watching this class, you'll feel confident the next time a friend asks you to go out for dinner, and you'll actually be able to be present and enjoy your meal. The Dining Out Masterclass is available now inside the IC Collective. Joining the IC Collective also gets you instant access to all of our previous masterclasses, where you can learn more about flare management, sex and IC, supplements for IC, and navigating the holidays with IC. Click the link in the show notes to join now. I can't wait to see you inside the collective. Welcome to the ICU podcast. I'm your host, Callie, a registered dietitian living with interstitial cystitis. Each week, I'll be diving into hot topics in the IC world, giving others a platform to share their story, and I may even reveal some of my favorite nutrition tips. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now, let's get into the episode. All right, welcome back. It's week two of Endometriosis Awareness Month. I'm here to bring you more endo content. I am so excited for this episode. So I have Cindy Dabrowska with me. Cindy, how did I do with that name? Very, very well. 10 out of 10. Perfect. So Cindy, you are a endometriosis dietitian. Is that kind of what you go by? That's right. Perfect. And can you give the audience a little background on you? maybe a little bit about your story and how you got into being an endo dietitian? Sure. So I think much like many other healthcare providers who work in specific, I should say health specific niches areas, I do have a personal tie to endometriosis. So I live with endometriosis myself. I'm one of those people who had extremely debilitating periods from the very first one I ever had at 12 years of age. And So I've gone through a lot of the same sort of things that a lot of women with endo likely have experienced in their journey. So a lot of gaslighting, being shuttled to and from doctors, to and from specialists. It took me 15 years to get my diagnosis. I had my laparoscopy in 2018 to confirm uh, suspected endometriosis. And I tried a lot of the sort of conventional treatment or I should say management strategies and certainly some of them did work like I was on birth control which is a really common um, medication that's used to manage symptoms of endometriosis and I was taking it in you know one of the busiest most demanding periods of my life as a as a young student and it really did help to improve my quality of life but then there came a time where I started spotting and started feeling really really unwell and my doctor's only solution was to put me on a more aggressive form of birth control and something about that just didn't really sit right with me 
so from there started my investigative journey like what can I do there are so many chronic illnesses in the world and people manage these successfully with diet and lifestyle why couldn't endometriosis be the same so I started researching I you know did all the the crazy restrictive diets that are recommended and purchase every supplement under the sun and only after I really really started digging into endometriosis I realized that a lot of that you know, probably wasn't very necessary, really started understanding what endometriosis is sort of at the, at the root. And it completely transformed the way that I live with, live with endometriosis. And to this day, I'm not taking, you know, any hormonal suppressants, any birth control. And I live for the most part, a very normal quality of life, a very normal life. And I really wanted to bring that to other people who live with endometriosis. It is possible to support yourself. It's, you know, diet and lifestyle is not a cure for endometriosis. Um, however, it is a very, very, very effective strategy for managing symptoms of endometriosis and, and improving fertility. And so I always, always, always in the back of my mind thought to myself, you know, while I was going through my master's degree to get my RD uh, registered dietitian credentials, I thought to myself, you know, someday I'll start a practice uh, in, in medical nutrition therapy and, you know, um, lifestyle management diet for endometriosis and you know eventually the right time came along and that's and that's where I that's that's where um, my practice came from basically yeah that's awesome it's your story is very similar to mine just obviously with IC knowing that you want to help other people with what you deal with and wanting them to understand that there is hope these conditions don't necessarily have to be debilitating there are things that you can do that might not be what your doctors are really pushing for. So we can kind of talk more about the treatment in a bit, but first, before we dive into all of that, I wanted to see if you could just define what endometriosis is in the simplest terms possible. Yeah, it's oh, endometriosis is so many things, but in simplest terms, it's a condition where tissue similar to that which lines the uterus, which we call the endometrium, grows outside of the uterus. I mean, it's not the same thing. So it grows outside, it grows elsewhere. It can really grow anywhere in the body at this point. It's a little bit more rare to find it on the lungs or in the brain in, in some of those um, unconventional locations, but it grows elsewhere and it, it does behave very similar to the endometrium. So when with those fluctuations in the hormones throughout the cycle, this tissue does bleed, uh, but because it's not in the uterus, it doesn't really have anywhere to go, right? It can't escape the way that our, you know, menstrual blood escapes when we menstruate. And so it forms the scar tissue and that scar tissue can adhere to a nearby organs. It causes a lot of uh, pain in many endo sufferers. It can affect nerve function. Uh, can cause your digestive health issues. So that's the way that I would describe it in, in the simplest terms, but it goes far beyond just uh, causing pain and, and inflammation. It's hormonally driven. There's an immune system dysfunction piece there. There's a lot of, I mean, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's some research now coming up, coming out, excuse me, about the connection between stored trauma and endometriosis development. And so ugh, it's a lot, it's a lot to unpack, but that's my simple definition for you and your listeners. <laughs> that's perfect. Um, I'm still learning about endometriosis and I've had three other endo-focused episodes 
Um, if anybody's listening and they want to go back to those, they're episodes 12, 19, and 29. Um, and then last week's episode, obviously, with Lux Perry. But that's so interesting about the stored trauma research, because with IC, there are theories about that as well. And I, I do believe that there is a huge nervous system component for a lot of us. And we're just like waiting on that research to happen. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the way that life has changed over the last 50 to 100 years, I mean, from our day to day, like work, stressors of commuting, how much the quality of our food has changed. Like, I can't, I can't imagine that those things aren't involved. Sorry, I kind of went a different direction there with the nervous system piece. But there's so many things that contribute to nervous system dysfunction right poor sleep quality stressors related to family life to work to responsibilities there anyway there's a really really long list b vitamin deficiencies and i can go down a rabbit hole with this magnesium deficiency and a lot of the conventional treatment strategies i should say management strategies actually i don't really like using the word treatment when it comes to endometriosis but management strategies actually will deplete us a lot of these minerals and vitamins and so it's a bit of a vicious cycle because yeah maybe you improve your quality of life a little bit but then it also encourages b vitamin deficiency or magnesium deficiency or zinc deficiency and these are things that in turn help with preventing endo regrowth and calm uh, inflammation and support the immune system and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. is there an age that it like is what am I trying to say? Is there an age where endo typically presents? Mm, there isn't actually, no. So you can be somebody like me who, you know, from your very first period gets pain and there's some indication that you may have endometriosis. There are some women that only start becoming symptomatic after an IVF cycle or giving birth. Some and and I should say there's a difference between being symptomatic and actually having endometriosis because we know that there is such a thing as silent endo, right? So you could be completely asymptomatic and still have endometriosis, and typically that will present with infertility. So I guess the the more appropriate answer there would be we don't really know because in order to get that information, you'd actually have to be doing a laparoscopy or some kind of like detailed ultrasound to you know, to establish like this is the set age that somebody gets endometriosis. I also see anecdotally in practice, like some, some women will go through, through trauma or they'll experience ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome through an IVF cycle, or they'll give birth or, or they'll experience a really severe state of stress at some point in their life. And that's when their symptoms just like take off. So there's a question like, was it always there or did a combination of these things or one of these things really uh, plant the seed and then encourage the the growth and pro- proliferation of the endo? So yeah, I would say no. Uh, yeah. I, I don't, I wouldn't say that there's like a, a established age at which it begins. I think there's actually some research that shows it could begin even in utero. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Are there any known risk factors? Yeah, there are a few. So diet is a huge one. So diets higher in trans fats, uh, saturated fats, 
refined carbohydrate, all of those seem to have, there's a correlation there with um, increased endometriosis risk of development. There's actually, I was recently, I was doing a bit of uh, research for one of the modules in my program on endo and there was actually some research on the use of combo birth controls, progestin and estrogen, sorry, progest yeah, progestin and estradiol. And there's some research to show that using combo birth controls actually shows that after the user comes off, that they have an increased risk of developing endometriosis. And not only that, but deep infiltrating endometriosis, which I know you know this, Callie, but I mean, birth control, combo birth controls are one of the most commonly recommended management strategies for endometriosis. So that's a little bit concerning. Mm -hmm. um, exposure to, to dioxins is a huge one too, whether that's through the environment or through your food supply. So dioxins are fat loving. They love anything that's higher in fat. So um, if your diet, and I, and I want to be very careful here not to suggest that you know, somebody with endo should be eating a, a fat-free diet. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. But if the diet is predominantly coming from saturated or trans fat, that's going to put you at an inc increased risk potentially. So that could be someone that is like trying to follow a keto lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It can be for sure. If you're a mother or some female relative in your direct family in your what's that word for direct family in your immediate family has endometriosis you're about six times more likely also to get endometriosis okay surprisingly dairy intake is inversely associated so the more dairy the less the lower the risk for endometriosis oh. and that's found in the research which is really interesting because um, if you know anything about this uh, there's a big X on dairy, like dairy, yeah. when you just kind of quickly look up endo diet, uh, dairy is a big no, no. I think that lacks a lot of solid research, but mm -hmm. dairy gets demonized in many conditions. It does. Yeah. But it goes so much deeper than just saying no to dairy. Like there are so many instances where somebody really should be consuming more. And then, of course, there are cases where it should be removed, uh, at least in part, uh, or, you know, permanently uh, in some people. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's my answer there. Okay. And then in terms of diagnosis, I know the laparoscopy is like the gold standard, right? Mm -hmm. And then you also mentioned, was it an MRI? Advanced ultrasound. Advanced ultrasound. Okay. Yeah. So lap laparoscopy is the gold standard. And I, I mean, I am not a surgeon, so I'll just preface by saying that, but, um, you know, my understanding for the longest time has been that your endometrial like tissue has to be biopsied in order to actually confirm that it's endo. So I'll use myself as an example. I had endometriosis in a few locations. One of the locations that was biopsied was my left abdominal wall. Everywhere else where endo was found in my body was endometriosis, but the tissue on the left abdominal wall, which I'm going to assume visually when you look at it looked very similar to endometrial like tissue, didn't turn out to be endometrial like tissue. It turned out to just be scar tissue. 
And so I think this is probably a more appropriate question for somebody who actually is skilled in advanced ultrasound because they may, you know, they may be so skilled that they're able to differentiate between scar tissue and endometrial like tissue in, you know, over the ultrasound, the advanced ultrasound. But that's the one problem that I think most people probably have with advanced ultrasound as a way of di diagnosing endometriosis, like how can you actually tell? And my understanding also is that it's quite a bit more accurate in somebody who has deep infiltrating endometriosis. So it, it appears quite a bit clearer on ultrasound, right? Versus um, somebody who maybe has like stage one, stage two, maybe it's not deep infiltrating, maybe it's just superficial endo. Uh, you probably would struggle to get a diagnosis that way. But that being said, I think it's an I think it's an exceptional science, and I I really do hope that it improves in accuracy and we can actually use it as a diagnostic tool. Because, like, could you imagine going in for surgery not even knowing if you have this condition? You have to do prep. Maybe you're asked to take antibiotics. Your recovery time is going to be two to three weeks depending on your state before going into surgery, they have no idea what they're going to find. So maybe you come out the other side of surgery with an ostomy bag or part of your bowel resected, like who knows, or maybe one of your ovaries removed. So if you can visualize what may be going on internally before you go in for surgery, like I think we could both agree that would be a fantastic uh, technology that we'd have available to us for, for women with endo. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that would be so helpful and and hopefully it happens soon. I I only wanted to talk about that because one of my Canadian clients did mention that someone near her did that and that's mm -hmm. really exciting. Yeah, probably Dr. Matthew Leonardi because he's he's got a a clinic now up and running. He's extremely busy in his clinic and and I think it's great. I think it's great. I think you know, keep keep pushing for that science, you know, spearhead the the movement towards uh, making this a, a, a trustworthy and accurate diagnostic tool. I think, yeah, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. And is the diagnostic criteria or like, is the diagnostic process the same all over the world or does it depend where you're located? I think, you know, much like with anything else, I do think that various, you know, different parts of the world, they're going to have slightly differing maybe diagnostic criteria I, I can't I can't speak mm -hmm. to like what the diagnostic criteria is like in the UK or Australia I do know it's a little bit different I have heard from a lot of clients that you know they won't even be considered for surgery if they don't take some kind of hormonal suppressant oh. I have my own opinions about that but right you know unless you want to know what they are I won't share them mm -hmm. <laughs> um so I know that there are some, you know, some things that differ. I know that surgery is a bit more accessible in some parts of the world. Like I have some clients who travel to Romania, for example. Um, I have clients in in certain parts of Europe traveling to other parts of Europe because surgery is more accessible. So yeah, I, I think my answer is, I think that's as good as my answer mm -hmm. is going to get. I do think it varies a little bit. I think surgery is more accessible in some parts of the world. Um I know that Australia is also working on advanced ultrasound as a diagnostic tool. That's one thing I can say. 
But I think generally speaking, like trying hormonal suppressants or birth control, maybe doing some further advanced imaging or something like that, and then lap as a last resort, I think that's pretty typical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the reason I asked was because with IC, it's the diagnostic criteria is different from the US and I believe Canada's Mm. similar to Europe. Europe, they require a cystoscopy and findings of lesions on the bladder to give a diagnosis of IC from my understanding. Um, And then here, they no longer, the American Urologic Association no longer recommends or requires a cystoscopy Mm -hmm. unless Hunter's lesions are um, suspected and you can be diagnosed with IC without lesions. So it is actually very different and that's confusing for everyone. Yeah. I had no idea. I wonder, I wonder what that's based off of. Maybe there's more of a correlation where if they find those lesions, you're more likely to have IC. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know either. It's just really interesting and bizarre at the same time to me. I wish we had just like this one governing body like a United Nations for IC because that would be helpful. We all just are talking to each other every single day on support groups. And it's, it's confusing when you don't know where someone is from and and what the background is. So um, yeah. So anyway, um, when it comes to, let's talk crossover with IC, Mm -hmm. like the similarities, because I recently saw a statistic that said, 40% of women with interstitial cystitis also have endometriosis. And that is very high. And I'll try to find where I got that and I'll cite it in the show notes. But I recently saw that and I was like, holy crap, that is much higher than I thought it was going to be. And so I thought it might be helpful for the listeners to maybe give the most common symptoms of endo and then I can identify which symptoms are similar and then we can kind of talk about it from there. Does that sound good? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I know, I know that there are specific few that are pretty consistent with both. Do you want me to just throw out a whole bunch of different symptoms and then discuss? Okay. So painful periods, very characteristic symptom of endometriosis and fertility is really common. GI symptoms, extremely common, upwards of 90% of endo warriors will have some kind of GI involvement, ovulation pain, uh, heavy clotty bleeding, although this one is definitely not consistent, you know, for everybody with endo. Uh, abnormal bleeding, it could be spotting before the period or it could be mid-cycle bleeding, like around ovulation, pain with sex, mm-hmm. a chronic pelvic pain, lower back pain, pain with urination is common as well, nerve pain. Um, and I mean, symptoms of endometriosis can extend just beyond the ones that I've listed. They could extend into hormonally driven symptoms because we know that there are specific hormonal imbalances that are really common with endometriosis. So basically anything that would be consistent with high estrogen, low progesterone. So a lot of anxiety, sleep issues, depression, um, really consistent, anything with immune system dysfunction too. So um, unfortunately losses when it comes to fertility, very common, Um, getting sick often as well, maybe being prone to infections, BV, yeast infections, things like that. 
Oh, and I always mention when I do podcasts, I list off a lot of like physical symptoms, but I don't want to neglect the fact that there's a huge mental health component with endo as well. I mean, it's an extremely lonely condition. There's a lot of gaslighting that happens when it comes to healthcare as well. So that's a really big one as well. And I, I wanted to make sure to mention that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Same with IC. Um, yeah. So the symptoms that stuck out to me that you said were the pain with sex, the painful mm-hmm. urination. Is there any sort of like frequency or urgency with endo? When it comes to urination? Yes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. See, that's where it gets so complicated because it's like, what if somebody is getting diagnosed with IC, but they really have endo? Yeah. And, you know, I think that's why people like yourself record these podcasts and like both of our pages raising awareness because there is a lot of overlap, right? And I think this is a big reason why it takes some people 15, 12, 20, 25 years to even get a diagnosis. What is the what is the timing like for an interstitial cystitis diagnosis from onset of symptoms? All over the place. I Okay. I see such a variety. I mean, I, I've had it my whole life. Um, I have clients who get it in their twenties, maybe when they're post-menopause, like it's just so unpredictable. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's how do your symptoms, I'm just curious, sorry, maybe I can ask you this. No, you're fine. We're not recording a podcast, but I'm just really curious. Like, do your symptoms present differently as a child versus now as like a, an adult? No, that's a really good question. No, very, very much the same other than the fact that it used to. So if, if you've had a UTI, it, it feels like you pee fire, essentially. It used to feel like that every single time that I peed when I was a kid to the point where I thought that was normal. And so as time went on and when I got to be like age 18, got my diagnosis, started the journey of, you know, treatment galore. um, Once I was able to get my symptoms managed, I started to obviously have less pain and now I can, you know, just pee normally without pain. And so it's definitely been a journey. Um, If I hadn't gotten any sort of intervention, I think that it would be the same and I would still have pain every single time that I urinated. But it's tough because everyone with IC presents so differently because some people can have frequency and urgency only. Some people can have pain only like me. Some people can have all of the symptoms. It's it's so unpredictable and that's where it gets complicated. And I, I don't want to not talk about pelvic floor dysfunction because I know in Mm. IC and endo I think that is a big crossover as well and and it can cause the same symptoms totally actually as you were talking I was thinking about like the original thought that you had about like okay well how do we you know distinguish between somebody having IC versus endo if there's all these overlapping symptoms is there a like definitive cause of IC? No. Nope. Just theories right now. Okay. So that's kind of where my mind went is like with endo, although I I don't think a lot of these overlapping symptoms, I don't, I also think we lack a lot of like definitive causes, but I know with like pain or feeling of fullness or urgency, like I think a lot of that can be driven by like endo on the ureters or even like on the bladder. 
Um, so if that's something that can be visualized or seen in a lab, then that might explain the symptoms. And then you'd be able to differentiate between IC and endo in that case. Mm-hmm. You mentioned pelvic floor dysfunction. So that would be a huge, huge cause as well, potentially if it's not, if it's not like a, a direct or indirect cause of endo. And with the whole like immune system dysfunction piece, the contributions of hormone, particularly estrogen to either reduced immunity or boosting immunity in endo. I feel like, I feel like UTIs, I feel like bladder infections are quite a bit more common too. Um, so I think that that might be. With IC or endo? Oh, I was thinking with endo. Okay. I don't know, maybe they're more common with IC as well, but I'm just kind of thinking from the perspective of like the cause and maybe that could be one way mm-hmm. that we differentiate between IC and endo. Yeah. I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud. No, <laughs> we need, we need to have these conversations. Um, I think that identifying exactly what it is you're feeling is also really helpful. So are you feeling like, is it pain? And if it is pain, is it like a sharp pain? Is it achy? Does it happen all the time or does it come and go? Mm. Like getting these like descriptive words down so that you can investigate that further. Because if you're not like, for example, I hear people with IC who will say, oh, I have pelvic pain. And it's Mm. like, okay, are, is it, pelvic pain or is it are you feeling pain in your bladder is it in your urethra does it happen before you pee after you pee it's like we need to have all of those details because you could be describing something completely different than what you're feeling and I think it's just like understanding the importance of that and just kind of working through that and I also want to say that's extremely difficult to do especially when you're like new to these conditions because before I I was like, okay, I know where my bladder is. I, I feel like my pain's in my bladder. And then my doctor was like, well, is it in your urethra? And I'm like, I don't know how to distinguish that. That's almost impossible. So I don't really know what I'm trying to say here, but I, I do think that figuring out what it is you're, you're feeling and getting words to that can be helpful in all of this. Yeah. And I totally agree. Like one of the first things I'll do when I'm meeting with clients and I'm, I'm trying to like piece apart what may be going on beneath the surface is understanding the symptoms when are they happening when are they worse like if somebody can clearly identify that their pain is worse in high estrogen phases of their cycle well I'm immediately thinking okay we need to find a way to facilitate movement of that estrogen out of the body a little bit more efficiently because you know things just don't happen like like this out of the blue, like if it's cyclical and you're, you're cycling regularly, there are obviously hormonal shifts that happen. And we can, if we can kind of identify that they're happening at that time of the cycle where you're getting that increase in estrogen, and then it kind of stays higher. That's very, very telling. Or if somebody, you know, gets an infection and has to be on antibiotics, and then all of a sudden they're bloated and their stools change in texture and they're seeing undigested food in the stool or they're getting more heartburn. Well, I know that I'm going to need to do a bit of work on their gut, right? Because we know that that connection exists. So yeah, I just wanted to to agree with that point you made about, you know, really clearly understanding and, and defining and describing those symptoms, um, charting, you know, trying to make those connections. I totally agree. I think for endo and IC alike, I think it's a, a super important, um, 
strategy thing thing for us to do in order to to better understand what might be going on and therefore to to address those symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and something I want to ask you about, and you totally do not have to have an answer for this. I'm just kind of spitballing here. Um, there are a lot of people with IC who flare every single month at the same time. So it's, it is a hormonal flare and there isn't much that doctors can offer them. So do you have any ideas like what people could try in terms of like, maybe it's diet related, maybe it is lifestyle, whatever, maybe medications. Do you have any sort of feedback for that? Yeah, well, it totally depends, I think, on when they're flaring. So if they if they are flaring around those high estrogen phases of the cycle, like if you're flare, flaring around ovulation, that's when your estrogen is going to be highest. So anything that's going to facilitate the movement of estrogen, I love a quality B complex for that. I love cruciferous vegetables for that, broccoli sprouts, burdock root tea. What are some other things? Um lemon water, castor oil packs over the liver or or the lower abdomen. And then we also have to kind of branch out from that. Like, is the person also experiencing some constipation? Because if you're experiencing some constipation, that is the last step in how we move estrogen out of the body. So then putting some direct strategies in there, whether that's a, a constipation specific probiotic like BioGaia or whether that's a prokinetic like ginger, for example. So all of those things can be helpful if they're flaring more at the start of their period when their estrogen levels are lowest, then there could be a connection there between estrogen actually being an immune system supporting hormone, right? So I think a lot of people don't realize this, especially with endo, we think estrogen is the devil because we know that, you know, endo is in part estrogen dependent, but if you have no estrogen or very little estrogen, you're also going to have symptoms. You're more likely to get BV. You're more likely to get yeast infections. Um, you're going to be more susceptible to, to like unwanted discharge and things like that. So, um, if that if that's when they're flaring, then you may actually want to focus on, you know, manipulating those levels. Maybe that's with dietary phytoestrogens, or maybe that's something like with maca root, for example, or fenugreek seed. But just to, like full disclosure, like I'm not suggesting that people listening to this actually, you know, start these strategies and 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 uh, try these things on their own without consulting somebody. Because if you don't know if your estrogen levels are low or high, then you could be doing yourself harm. So things like that, right? So um, yeah, th- those are some strategies I would use, but it does also depend on on when exactly they're flaring, how cyclical it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I typically hear about it happening during ovulation. So all those symptoms mm-hmm. are really helpful. And I feel like people are going to be really excited to hear this. And obviously they are going to consult with their doctor first because that's what we tell them to do on this podcast. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> um. So in terms of diet for endo, is there one recommended diet or is it more individualized? Come on, Callie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm setting you up for something. I know. <laughs> I know you know the answer to that question, but I know you're not, you're not asking for yourself. You're asking for, for the listeners. Yeah, there, there is no one specific diet. I would say the closest diet that can be like kind of uh, equally applicable across the board is the Mediterranean diet, because this is the most anti-inflammatory diet we have. We have thousands of research, thousands of research. That's not grammatically correct. We have <laughs> thousands of research articles. I don't know, however yeah. you want to phrase it, 
um, showing that the Mediterranean diet is highly, highly effective for chronic inflammatory conditions, uh, really helpful for normalizing blood sugars and weight and blood pressure and diabetes. So uh, although I'm sure that there is some, some version of the Mediterranean diet studied for the endometriosis population, um, I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't be equally as applicable. Now, that being said, endo is so, so complicated. It sounds, you know, much like I see. And so one of the things you'll find in the Mediterranean diet is legume servings, right? Three legume servings per week. I like to encourage my clients to consume legumes. However, we know that there's also an extremely intricate relationship between the gut microbiome and the proliferation of endometriosis. I can't even tell you how common something like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is, or um, when I do certain like functional testing with my clients, how often I'll see like E. coli or salmonella or other pathogens uh, in their stool. Like it's really common. And we have established research to show that these pathogens are consistent. We see them often in somebody with endometriosis and it's part of the pathogenesis. It's part of how endometriosis establishes and proliferates. So anyway, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but the whole point is Sometimes, and I'm a big believer that um, inflammation comes before food sensitivities. So I'm not saying that you're, you know, it's impossible that you're somebody who has a food sensitivity and, you know, it, it's, you don't actually have a food sensitivity. I'm not saying that that's not possible, but most often in practice, I'm finding that if I do a little bit of work with some of my clients, like let's, let's nourish the, the large intestine microbiome. Like let's get things moving through. Well, let's, let's balance out those, those bacteria. Then all of a sudden they're able to tolerate all these foods that they weren't able to tolerate before. Right. And, and so I'm cycling back I'm circling back to, uh, to the legumes because it's a big one that causes a lot of gas in people. Right. And so I'm always, 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 you know, quick to tell people, like, if the only reason you're avoiding this extremely fiber rich food that is so very nourishing to your gut microbiome is because you get bloating, then let's try a Beano enzyme and see if that's enough to help you break down the alpha galactosidase or the, um, the sugar there. So Beano is the alpha galactosidase enzyme. Let's see if that helps, you know, support your body in breaking down that, that sugar and see if we can get you tolerating that better, right? Bloating is not bloating is not a, a reasonable reason to cut cut an entire food category out of your diet. Um, if there are some supports that we can use to to help you tolerate it a little bit better. But um, sorry, this is a super long answer. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here. But You're anyway, fine. that was my point: is that there are some things on the Mediterranean diet that you know are a little bit questionable for for some people with endometriosis. So. Um, in that case, it does have to be individualized. Um, you know, dairy is a hot topic. Do I think every single person with endometriosis needs to remove dairy? I don't. I think, you know, calcium is one of the most important minerals for cramping uh, and muscle relaxation. And so if you're deficient in calcium, you're cramping, your, your pain is going to get so much worse. And calcium deficiency is one of the most common mineral deficiencies I see in practice. Um, so you need to be very careful that if if dairy is not serving your body with endo, you need to make sure that you're actually replacing it adequately. And our our needs, our calcium needs are a thousand milligrams per day. Uh, you're going to have a really hard time meeting that need with 
like cooked collards in the morning or, you know, like broccoli, it's going to be, you're going to have to eat a lot of it. Okay. Let's, let's just, let's just say that. Um, although you can meet your needs with plant sources, of course, you just need to be very, very aware of how much you're getting in. Gluten is one that I would say more people benefit from gluten removal than don't. However, that doesn't mean that everybody needs to remove gluten. So usually, usually what I recommend is there's always usually like quote unquote safer foods that fall under that food category. So I usually say to people like, let's cut out the the processed gluten containing sources, right? Like your cookies, cakes, pastries, muffins, pancakes, things like that. And let's try the whole food sources first. So let's try some barley. Um, let's try some sourdough, right? See if you tolerate those better. And if you're if you're seeing your digestive health symptoms improve, if you're seeing your your pain levels improve, maybe it's actually that you just shouldn't be eating a lot of the processed versions, right? The more the more processed versions. Let's stick to just the whole food versions, right? Because now not only are you you're giving your body like a more um, easily digestible form of gluten, but you're also giving your body foods that are significantly more nutrient dense than like the muffin you're getting at your coffee shop down the road, right? Obviously a diet that's very, very, very high in colorful plant foods is gonna be really helpful because we know that these foods are very antioxidant rich. They're really important for the gut microbiome. Omega-3s are gonna be huge um, as part of the diet with endometriosis. Omega-3s help to fight uh, inflammation. They're quite anti-inflammatory. And it's not, I think this is a common misconception that omega-6s are bad. Omega-6s are not bad. It's when your ratio becomes extremely unbalanced. Like the North American, what we're seeing in terms of the ratios in the North American population of omega-6 to omega-3 consumption is about 40 to 1. We want that ratio to be closer to 4 to 1, right? Because everything that you buy that's boxed, packaged, that's takeout, that's from your local restaurant, vegetable oils are very, very cheap for these food manufacturers or uh, food service providers they're very very inexpensive so you're very unlikely to find like a fast food joint down the road or a local restaurant using olive oil or avocado oil they're going to be spending a lot of money on those oils and so they're using cheaper vegetable oils that's not to say you can't eat out you can't enjoy a meal out you can but just keep in mind that if you are somebody who's eating a lot of foods that are boxed or uh, ordered from a local restaurant or something like that, they're very likely going to contain vegetable oils over like a, a preferred form of oil, like avocado oil or, or um, olive oil. That was a lot. And there's so much more I can say. <laughs> I'm just sitting here letting you do it because you're talking about a lot of really helpful information. I think not many people know about everything you said about the omegas. Um Gluten, I mean, that is just such a gluten-free diets are really trendy and yes, they do help a lot of people, but I agree with you. You, you can start small and maybe if yeah. you're having big results, you can keep some gluten in your diet. I think mm -hmm. a gluten-free diet is a really sad diet because <laughs> bread is life. And if you don't absolutely need to do it, then that's wow. what I have to say about that. Um, but yeah, really helpful information there. Um, I know that you have to get going soon, so I'm going to try to wrap this up, but is there anything else that you want 
people to know about endo? Um, like maybe what if somebody is considering or thinking, okay, I'm I might have this, like what would the next step be? What kind of doctor would people go to for that? So oh, darn. <laughs> I think my bias is gonna come out here. <laughs> <laughs> um I think it's gonna be very helpful to whoever you go to see if they have some kind of data. So some kind of charting, right? Just like Callie, you alluded to previously, if you can say like cyclically around this time, I'm getting this, this, and this symptom, then if it's a knowledgeable provider and they have a good understanding of human physiology, they might be able to tie that back to a certain shift in your hormones or they may be able to predict what is to come, right? Uh, if they do a dietary, a, a comprehensive diet review and see like, you know, you're not eating very many iron containing foods, right? Then you can link that back to why you might be having heavy bleeding and feeling fatigued all the time and experiencing a lot of clots and having extremely aggressive estrogen dominant symptoms. So charting is huge. Whatever data you can collect is going to be really, really helpful. You know, this is not to say that there are not good doctors out there. Absolutely, there are. I do think they're hard to find, if I'm honest. So you could see a doctor. I mean, that's the only way you're going to get a referral for a laparoscopy. So even before going in for that appointment, you know, do research, uh, identify, you know, what is endo? What are the common symptoms of endo? How many of those do you have? Be very confident in asking for that referral. Before you go in for that appointment, seek out endometriosis specialists in your geographical area and literally bring to that appointment three names of doctors who are accepting patients that that doctor can refer you to. You're very likely going to be offered some kind of hormonal hormonal contraceptive or hormonal suppressant. So if you're not opposed to using either of those as a management strategy, just make sure you do your research. If you are opposed to using those, maybe you're fertility focused, or maybe you've tried a hormonal contraceptive or hormonal birth control in the past and just didn't tolerate it very well, then make sure you come with that information to your appointment. You can also get a lot of symptom relief by seeking out support from somebody like me, who's like a functional medicine focused dietitian or a local naturopath who has um, some, some knowledge of endometriosis. Yeah, those are, those are some things I do have also, this is, a, this isn't an intentional plug for my blog or anything, but I do have a blog post on, um, 25 questions you can ask your doctor or endosurgeon. So I don't know, Kelly, if that's something we can link that to or yeah, so that might be helpful too, just to kind of give people an idea of what questions may be helpful to ask, uh, and how the answers may guide like, you know, future, future uh, decisions you make in terms of your management strategies. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that that will be great as well. Um, I have a couple of other blogs too, like, okay, now you got a diagnosis, what to do next, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's what I would do um, to to speed up the process as, as quickly as possible because it's unfortunately very true that it takes very very long for most people to get an endo diagnosis. Just come prepared, right? Come with some names of surgeons you want a referral to, and just kind of get the ball rolling and and hold firm. Keep asking until you get what you want, uh, because you're very likely going to encounter some resistance. But just keep pushing, just keep trying. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're going to be your best advocate. I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Perfect. I think that was all phenomenal advice and information. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. Um, where can people follow you on social media? My Instagram handle is endo.fertility.dietitian with two T's, no C. And uh, endometriosisdietitian.fave, my website. I also have a Pinterest. I do have a TikTok, but I'm not very active there as of right now. Um, so yeah, those are, yeah, but those are the platforms you can find me on. Okay, perfect. And are you currently accepting new clients? <laughs> I am always, <laughs> I am always open to talking to somebody who is seeking out support. So I guess, yeah, the, the answer is yes, I am. So yeah, it, it my calendar is, it's really hard to book in for a call with me right now, but uh, please, please don't hesitate to send me a message over Instagram or email. I will respond to you if you're keen on connecting. Um, so yeah, we'll say yes. Okay, perfect. I completely understand what you were trying to say there. So awesome. Um, thank you again for doing this and we will hopefully collaborate again in the future. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks so much for having me, Callie. It was great. Um, I also have a chat with you. We did a live on Instagram that I'm, I hope your listeners also check out too, because you provided so much great information Mm -hmm. from the other way around. So you talked a lot about IC, which was, which was fantastic. But Mm -hmm. yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great. Always a pleasure to chat with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to make sure you're subscribed and following along. If you enjoyed this episode specifically, please be sure to leave a five-star review and tell me exactly what you enjoyed about the episode. For more content, follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Callie K Nutrition.